Let's pray one more time as we enter into the word of God and see what he has in store for us. Father, right now we choose to lift our hearts to you. As we sang, you have given us new mercies this morning. Lord, we ask that you would bless us with an intensification with your presence. Lord, that you would take this word, your word, and drive it deep into our hearts. Lord, we pray that every man would disappear except Christ Jesus. Lord, that he would be seen, loved, adored, exalted, and lifted high. Take your word, Lord, as we heard yesterday, and make it come and manifest in our flesh, in our lives. Lord, remove any confusion, distraction. Come and visit our hearts again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we scale through the scriptures, we realize that there are a number of titles that God reveals to his people throughout the generations. These various badges that God carries reveal something about both his attributes, who he is, and his ability, what he's able to do. These things are found in his name alone, never mind in his actions. And as his people, we find ourselves in prayer, in worship, identifying and relating to God with various names, do we not? Holy and anointed one, redeemer, son of God, son of man, king of kings, lord of lords, healer, great physician, prince of peace. And we thank God for that because we benefit from understanding who he is through these names. His name reveals who he is. And yet, in my context at least, there is one title that God gives of himself that you don't really hear often. It's not really said in prayer. Sometimes, maybe in songs, we maybe hear it in Bible study. But it's a name of God nonetheless. And it's found in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6. It's a title that God gives himself very early in the Bible at a very crucial time in redemptive history to a very important figure amongst God's roster of servants. God says in Exodus 3, verse 6, to Moses, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is a reference that God gives himself. This is a title, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God in his wisdom, amongst all the other things that he could have revealed himself with, he chooses to expose himself, to reveal himself to Moses in this matter. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's the question, why? What does that name even mean? What significance does that have? Well, this morning I believe it has three, at least three significant revelations about who God is. Number one, it reveals something that we sang, that God is a faithful God. He's a promise-keeping God. See, when God chooses to reveal himself this way to Moses, it was at a specific time. Moses was going to be chosen to be a vessel to go and deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. 
And for hundreds of years, the people were what? Suffering under affliction from an oppressor. And it was at this moment that God chooses to use a man to deliver as an extension of his grace. And this is what he's saying to Moses. I've made a promise many years ago to Abraham. And I passed that promise down to Isaac. And I passed that promise down to Jacob. And my promise can be summarized in this. I promise to make a people. And I promise to take that people to birth a nation and to bring them into a land and to inhabit that land. That's what my promise is. And though I've said it many years ago, and though it seems like I've been silent, I've now come to manifest the reality of my faithfulness. And that's why you look at verse 15 here. When God tells Moses again to go to the people with this name in mind. He says, look, God also said to Moses, say this to the people. I'm not just saying this to you, Moses. I'm not just telling you that I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm telling you to go tell the entire nation that I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He has sent me to you. After 400 years, this is when God chooses to reveal himself this way. And this is how we understand what this name means for us. When God says something, he means it. He is immutable. He is unchanging. He's unwavering. If God said it in his word, he has no intention, nor does he even have the ability, because he's not a man that can lie, to change his mind on what he said. So every time I come to this word, I can trust that what he said, he's going to keep. Who he says he is, he is. What he will do in the future, he's going to do. Now I thank God for that. Because just like the Israelites, I can be going through so much and yet trust that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said something before and I'm going to make it happen. So guess what? If Jesus said he's coming back, he's coming back. If Jesus says that he's going to redeem us and bring us to a place that he's preparing for us, he's going to bring us to that place that he's prepared for us. If he's going to wipe out everything else so that he can establish his kingdom, guess what? He's going to do it. Well, it seems like it's kind of quiet. seems like nothing's really happening based on that promise. Like the Israelites, hundreds of years, where is this promise keeping God? But just like Moses, he will show up and he will keep his word. That's true on a corporate level, that's true for his program for the universe, and that's true for you and I as individuals. God is a promise-keeping God. I can trust in him, I can lean on him, I can take this word and know that it is true forever. But it doesn't just end there. Jesus quotes this verse, which reveals the second point of what this title means about God. I would encourage you to turn to Matthew 20, 32, and see what Jesus says here. The context is this. You had a group of liberal religious people called the Sadducees. They didn't like miracles and supernatural stuff. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection and that there were angels and spirits. No, no, no. That's all foolishness. And so in an attempt to try to trick Jesus, never a good idea, by the way, they approach him and they try to create this scenario to try to stump him in his understanding of the resurrection. And Jesus replies in Matthew twenty two thirty two. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? He's telling the Sadducees, have you not read what was said to you by God? And he quotes Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham 
and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Now, Jesus is a wise teacher and a wise evangelist. The Sadducees did not believe in any other books except for the first five books of the Bible. Jesus could have quoted a lot of books, a lot of verses from the prophets to prove the resurrection. But he knew that they did not hold to Daniel. They did not hold to Isaiah. Only in the first five books. So Jesus, in his wisdom, quotes from Exodus and proves the resurrection from the Exodus. But I love this. He says, have you not read what was said to you? Now, if we can put up Mark 12, 26, this is the same story told in a different way with different wording. And see what Jesus says in Mark 12, 26. And it's very important because it tells us something about the power of the word of God. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying the same thing? So in Matthew, he says, listen, have you not read what was said to you? In Mark, he says, have you not read what was said to him? Now we read Exodus, we realize that that revelation that God gave was for Moses. It wasn't to the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't even come to existence for hundreds and hundreds of years. But yet Jesus says, have you not read what was said to you? You know what that tells me about the Bible? You know what it tells me about the stories that we read? You know what it tells us about everything that's in Scripture? That even though he said it to another person, even though he said it in another time, he had us in mind. He had us in mind. He wants to speak to you and to me through Leviticus. He wants to speak to you, to me, as he spoke to Moses and spoke to Samuel and spoke to Jeremiah. He wants to speak to us when he speaks to them. Everything in the Word of God is intended for us as well. It's not just a historical thing that we study. Lord, what are you saying to me? And so when he says, have you not read what was said to you, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I'm not just saying that to Moses. I'm saying it to Maranatha 2019 to every single person in this place. So now i got to know what that means. And in the context here, Jesus quotes this title to prove something about God's power. He says it. We have to read it carefully. I am, present tense, the God of Abraham. Not I was. I am right now. To say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their bodies might be dead, but their spirits are alive. And they're with me. They're with me, because I'm not the God of the dead, I'm the God of the living. Their bodies are waiting to be resurrected, but they are with me right now. Because that is the reality of our existence. That when we escape these bodies, we will be in the presence of God, or in the place where God is not. And he's saying this to prove the resurrection, but this title means something for us, that if he raised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to raise me. That if they are in the presence of God when they gave their last breath, I will be in the presence of God when I give my last breath. And you read in the book of Matthew even earlier, he talks about two destinations for two groups of people. And he says people from the east and the west, north and south, they will come and they will be gathered and they will be in the kingdom of heaven doing what? Sitting at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Part of heaven is going to be sitting down with these guys. Part of the experience of glory is that the Bible studies that we have, and even this session right now, we're going to be able to hear about the faithfulness of God from Abraham's own lips. We're going to be able to talk about the goodness of God from Isaac's own mouth. We're going to hear about God's 
perseverance and his patience with us through Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead, I'm the God of the living. And he quotes that title to say, life is coming to you. Life doesn't end here. Life's not finished here. There's a place where you're going to come. There's a place where I'm going to take you to, where you will be in my presence forever. Lastly, I think this is very important, and this is the main point of the whole conference. The whole conference is going to be centered around the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here's the last point. He is the God who works in and through different people. As glorious as these truths are, that God is the promise-keeping God, that God is the resurrector, yet there's still some other component to this title that is more relational than we think. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God chooses to identify himself with each of them. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could have taken up three verses or four verses tops. To say, and Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and the seed passed down. It could have just been a genealogical thing. But you know what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob take up most of the book of Genesis. Why? And what we see there is that God walks with them, and God talks with them, and God leads them, and God promises them, God disciplines them, and God tests them individually. Because for God to say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is the God who says, I'm personal. I'm not just the God for Christians. I'm not just the God of the Bible. I'm your God. I'm your friend. I'm your protector. I'm your leader. I'm your sanctifier. And so we understand something about the personality of God. We understand something about the relationship that he longs to have with us as individuals. And as much as these men have something in common, they are very much different. Think about Abraham. Abraham had a father named Terah. Abraham grew, grew up in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham, perhaps we didn't realize this, was not a man that was faithful to the living God all his life. He lived in a pagan land, and Abraham, who we call the father of faith, was actually a worshiper of false gods. That is not mere opinion, that is not speculation. Hear this verse, when Joshua preaches to his people, look what he says about Abraham in Joshua 24 too. Just listen. It says, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we have this understanding that Abraham just pops on the scene and God calls him because he was faithful. No, when God found Abraham, when Abraham lived most of his life, it was actually an idolatry. Living for and worshiping other deities other than the true and living God. And we understand from Genesis 12 that God calls this man clearly at the age of 75. And he not only calls him, but he uses him in a mighty and glorious way. And here's how we understand something about Abraham. God being the God of Abraham tells me this, tells us this. That if you've lived most of your life, most of your existence for yourself in your sin, worshiping even false God, including yourself. God is able to redeem you. God is able to renew you. And God is able to empower you for the rest of your life. And God can flip the script. 
no matter how long you live. To the human eye, like Abraham, you might have wasted your existence for the most part. But when I hear that God is the God of Abraham, what I hear is that God is a God that can redeem anybody because it's never too late. And not just redeem them, but have a plan for them for the rest of their lives. God is the God of the one who can save you even if you're dying in your body. Is that you? Do you feel like you've wasted most of your teenage years? Do you feel like you've wasted your high school years? You're wasting your college years? Do you feel like now you are just awakening to the reality? Oh yeah, life is beyond. The gods that I've created in my life, the things that I've pursued and worshipped. God tells us through this title that he can save you. Redeem you, renew you, restore you, and do things through you that you never thought you could imagine. If he did it for Abraham, he can do it for you. But he's not just the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac. And that's different because the God of Isaac, concerning Isaac, is much different than Abraham. Isaac didn't grow up in a pagan land. Isaac isn't one that we hear that was worshiping false gods. Isaac was somebody that grew up in a household of faith. Surely Isaac heard the stories from his father Abraham, from his mother Sarah, of the faithfulness of God. Surely Isaac, when he came to that epic scene in Genesis 22, when he was willing to lay down his own life on the altar, realized the intervention of God, and even himself got a glimpse of the gospel when God provided a substitute for his own life. He heard it, he's seen it, he, he smelt it, he was in that environment his whole life. Isaac, in our context, is the kid that grew up in the Christian home. He's the one since birth knew about truth. But he's also the God of Isaac. You realize that, right? Because you read Isaac's life and you realize that Isaac experiences something of the goodness of God. That God still calls Isaac, even though Isaac was so familiar with God. That Isaac didn't have this radical shift, this, this transformation that he lived for idols and he lived in a pagan land and God calls him out of that land to an unknown land. No, Isaac just grew up in it. And yet God still says, I'm going to expose and reveal my goodness to you, my mercy to you, my plans for you and through you. I still have a plan for the Isaacs. The Isaacs are not outside of my ability and my willingness and my wanting to show myself strong to them. He's the God of God of Isaacs, which tells me something. Listen, if you, probably majority of the place in, the, in this place, grew up in a Christian home with faithful parents, you might think that there is no plan, there might be no testimony, there might be no ability to relate to God. I mean, I've heard it over and over again. I haven't experienced God's love like that drug dealer did or that gang member did. I haven't experienced the goodness of God because I didn't experience darkness or I wasn't so filthy and sin to know the redemptive power of His blood. And so they get bored. And they just kind of cruise through life normally. But brothers and sisters realize He's also the God of Isaac. And he shows himself to Isaac. And he reveals himself to Isaac. He speaks to Isaac the same way he spoke to Abraham and Jacob. So you and I must never believe that just because I might have grown up in this certain context, that I cannot know God the same way Abraham did or Jacob did. But he's also the God of Jacob. Jacob is interesting. Because Jacob, like Isaac... 
grew up in that household of faith. He had believing parents. I mean, Isaac knew the goodness of God. He had his wife in a miraculous fashion. He's seen God bless him abundantly, even right after he came out of backsliding, Genesis 26. But Jacob was different than Isaac in this, that we are introduced to him in a very negative light. That when Jacob steps on the scene with his brother Esau, both of them are in complete rebellion and contradiction to what their conviction should have been. So how are we introduced to Jacob? Well, he lives up to his name. He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. And he eventually has to leave home because of his own sin. And he's found in a wilderness and he's found really in a mess for a good portion of his life. And Jacob speaks something about the one who grew up in a house where he's heard the Bible stories. He's went to Sunday school. He fell asleep in the youth meetings. He was dragged to conferences. And when he wanted to have his way, he would try to have his way. It was all about the flesh. It was all about mine. The name Jacob, as we're going to find out, does not just mean deceiver. It means heel grabber. You know what Jacob was? He was a grabber. I want this. This is mine. I want that. That is mine. I want her. She's mine. I want the blessing. It's mine. I grab, I grab, I grab. It's about me. It's not about giving. It's not about dying to self. It's not about extending. No, it's about how much can I gather in for myself. That's Jacob. And a lot of people in Christian households live just like that. I want to live for me. Never mind the glory of God. Yet, God is the God of Jacob's. And so as much as Jacob tried to do it his own way, you see God chasing after Jacob. And as much as Jacob lived to really bring shame to the name, God says, you know, Jacob, as much as you think that you're going to do this your own way, you think that you've messed up to a degree where it's unredeemable, I'm going to so radically shift you. I'm going to so break you, Jacob. I'm going to so reveal myself to you that I will literally, physically change the way you walk. And for the rest of his life, he would limp as a testimony of how God can change Jacob's into Israel's. And so you have people Unfortunately, Christian parents that approach and say, my son is not living according to how we taught him. My daughter is not living according to the way we've raised her up. They're grabbers. They're living for self. They have their own ambitions. They have their own pursuits. And yet here's a message of hope that he's the God of Jacob's. So what do we understand when God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? This is what we understand. Whether you've lived most of your life for self, living in idolatry, living in sin, God can save you, change you, and use you. Whether you grew up in a household of faith, you didn't have this radical story, and you feel as though you need that to know God in a special way, he's the God of Isaacs. And he wants to speak to you and reveal himself to you just like the Abraham. Or whether you're like Jacob, you hear it, you know it, you understand it, you just haven't had an encounter with God yet. God is the God of Jacob, and he is so patient, so loving, so forgiving, 
And he is so jealous for his glory. Do you know that he wants to use you in a way that it will display his manifest love? It's amazing how God says, I'm the God of Jacob. Even after his name is changed to Israel, he still chooses to identify himself with Jacob. And as much as these men were different, and that's the point of this conference, we're going to explore in different sessions these men and how God dealt with them differently and what principles they offer us through their lives. God has a commentary about all three men. It is astounding what he says about these three men in the New Testament. It's actually shattering how God actually comments on their lives. This is one to really highlight. It's in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 16. Now when you understand the context, you realize that he just finished speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says this in verse 16. He says, but as it is, they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, now listen to what God says about them. Please pay attention to this. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now I look at that verse and I say, praise God. But I look at that verse also and I say, oh God. Because for God to be able to say, I'm not ashamed to be called their God, implies that he can be ashamed to be called someone's God. I don't want to be one where God says, mm, yeah, I, he calls me Lord. Yeah, he, he, he says, I'm God. Oh, but Abraham. Oh, I'm his God. I'm his Lord. I'm his master. Well, what about him? Yeah, I don't know how this works, really. I'm trying to fit this into my own theology. But I understand from the book of Proverbs that even an earthly father, if you've read Proverbs carefully, there are many instructions given for a son not to bring shame to their father, for their daughter not to bring reproach to her mother. And here's the reality. If we're all believers in this place, we are all children of God. We are all adopted. We are all in the family by the grace and the Lord of our saving souls. He is the one that can redeem us and bring us to that place. Yes, by his finished work. But... We have to understand that even in an earthly setting, in a familial setting, that children relate to their parents differently and parents relate to their children differently. So when it says about these three men that he's not ashamed to be called their God, my question is why? What did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have for God to say, I'm their God? And I'll declare it, and he declared it through his word. Was it because of their spotless lives? Was it because of their consistent faithfulness? 
Was it because of their absence of failure? Because I read Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and guess what I see? Failure. Moments where they stepped out of faith more than once. I mean, you hear the audible voice of God, the audible voice of God, and you're still like, eh. And yet God still says, I'm not ashamed. I mean, what was it? Was it their, their gifting? Was it their abilities? What was it for God to say, my heart is stirred towards these men to say, I'm their God? It's right there in the verse. It says here, but as it is, they desire. So it wasn't even necessarily about what they did, it was about what they had in their hearts. Oh, this is powerful. Listen to this. God's delight in his heart, listen, God's delight in his heart towards these men was provoked by the desire in their hearts. What moved God's heart to delight in these men was when he zoomed past through the failure, he zoomed past through the moral failure, he, all these things, all these mistakes, all these hiccups, he zoomed past all of that and he looks into their hearts and he saw something in each of them they desire. What do they desire? A better country. What they lived for, what provoked them, the, the throne of their affections, the throne of their ambitions was something beyond this life. It was nothing of this world. It was nothing that was found here. Even when they were called to live in a place where they did not even know, really down deep inside, they, they wanted something beyond. They wanted the abode of God. They wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to be where he was. They wanted something that was otherworldly. And this moved God's heart to say, though you see these distractions and though you see the land and though you've been blessed with many flocks and land and all these things, peace with your enemies, you still have a desire greater than these things. And so I'm not ashamed to be called your God. So for me to move into that favor, for me to move into that position with God where he can look at me and says, I'm not ashamed to be called as God in 2019, is all found in what I truly want in this life. What do I want? What's really in my desires? I mean, listen, if, if we just open your heart, even this morning, and we look inside and see what are your joys and what are your pursuits and what really brings glee to you, what would it be? You say, well, this and that. Well, listen, what's at stake here is the smile of God. What's at stake here is God being able to look over you and be able to. I love the book of Job because Satan doesn't introduce Job to God. God introduces Job to Satan. He says, have you seen him? He's blessed, he's rich, but he fears me. Uh, yeah, but because he loves the stuff that you give him. Touch his stuff. Let me up the ante. Touch his body. And watch. And I think, I mean, you read in Isaiah even where Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. All of that is found in the central truth found in Hebrews eleven sixteen. They desire. A better country because it speaks about their desire for him 
And that's why David was a man after God's heart. He failed. He royally messed up. No pun intended. God can still identify him that way. And then you look at Saul, who messed up, not to the degree that David did, in my opinion, and God says, get rid of him. Why? Desire. Saul wanted position. David wanted presence. It's all about desire. And as we walk in that desire and we fall and we fail, there's no shame. In my whole life, I've heard of understanding to never be ashamed of God. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. Don't ever be ashamed of the truth of the scriptures. But I have very rarely heard the concept of God not being ashamed of me. Oh, thank God that positionally in Christ, we are all sons and daughters. Thank God for that. But practically, relationally, experientially, Lord, look into my heart. Do you see what you want to see? Lord, look past my failures. Forgive me. Look past my inconsistencies. Look past my my faults. Look past the thoughts that come in and crash sometimes against this one thing I have, Lord. And see all of it through this lens. I desire you above everything. I desire a better country. I'm not bound to this world. I'm I'm a sojourner. I live in tents. I'm I'm not stuck here. Lord, I need you. I want you. And God can look down and say, ah. I found one whom I'm not ashamed to call his God. I want that more than anything. I want that commentary of my life more than anything. Forget anything else. Forget the praise of man. Forget the titles. Forget forget it. For God to say, oh. The desire that he has in his heart moves my heart. This is one in whom I can say, I'm his God. I'm his Lord. I'm his master. We should be able to unashamedly say, he's my God. He's my Lord. He's my master. We should proclaim that from the rooftops. But for God to say from heaven, down on the earth, say, that's my son. That's my daughter. Look at the desire in our heart. Look at all the things that come their way. Look at all the other Christians distracted with money and all this other worldly stuff. But him, I'm his God. I'm just going to end it there. Because I think that's enough for us to be able to say, Lord, do something in me. When you and I hear that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what we hear is this. He's the promise keeper. If he said it, he means it. He is the resurrector. The same way that they are right now in the presence of God and their bodies are awaiting to be glorified. So you and I have hope to realize that when we pass from this life to the next, we will fellowship with these men and we will be able to hear from their own mouths over some dinner how good God is. But we also hear this. He is a God that is relational and he works in each and every single one of us. And no matter where we've come from, No matter what we've grown up in, no matter what we've made as mistakes, God is still able to do something in and through us. And ultimately, they all have this one thing in common, though they were all unique. I'm not ashamed to be called their God because they have a desire for my presence, my kingdom, my will. 
And that's what God wants to be able to say about all of us. I thank God it's not about performance. I thank God that he doesn't keep record of my wrong. I thank God that his smile is not based necessarily on this or that. But he looks deep inside and he sees a desire. And that moves his heart. Can we seek him this morning and thank him for such a wonderful God? We are praying to, in a moment, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's pray. Just meditate on these truths before we do so corporately. Lord, we recognize you this morning as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We thank you that you're personal, that you want to walk with each of us, you want to talk to each of us, you want to reveal yourself uniquely and individually to each of us. Lord, we pray that if there are any people in here that might be any one of those, they can relate to any one of those people, that you would make yourself known. And that they can see that no matter where I am right now, God is still willing to relate to me. But Father, even now we pray for this corporate desire that you would be able to say of this place over each person, I'm not ashamed to be called their God because they desire better country. Lord, you call us to set our minds on the things above. You call us to set our affections on you above all things. So Lord, right now we pray that you would do that work in each heart. That every heart would be able to confidently display the desire for greater things in you. And that, that would be the very thing that moves your heart towards us. Lord, we praise you and worship you in light of this title that you've given to us. In Jesus' name.